This is Backstory. I'm Peter Onuf. What do a porcelain teacup, a birth certificate, and a pair of nylon stockings have in common? If the Americans could produce their own porcelain, the world was their oyster. What changed was that the kind of work children could do became industrial. Bright, silky nylon yarn. Better things for better living. They all tell a story of American manufacturing. All over, it's the same. Manufacturing way down. We are builders, and we need to get back to building. This year, both presidential candidates have been lamenting the decline of American manufacturing and promising a brighter future. Today, the story of those American industries and five unexpected objects. A history of manufacturing, coming up on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Peter Onuf, here with Ed Ayers. Hey, Peter. And Brian Ballow. Hey there, Peter. Today we're doing something a little different on Backstory. As always, we'll be exploring the history of one topic, in this case manufacturing. But we're going to take a look at that history by examining five objects. And in looking at those five objects, we'll illuminate key moments in the history of American industry. First up, the precursor to the modern rifle. The musket. What's so special about the musket, Ed? <laughs> Brian, that wasn't exciting enough to you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you can have a ball with muskets. Oh, God. And we're going to begin by talking about someone you might recognize, a Mr. Eli Whitney. I know him. He invented the cotton gin. Well, kind of. He did not invent the cotton gin. This is historian Merritt Rose Smith. He invented a very effective cotton gin. There mm-hmm. have been many cotton gins before Whitney came along. But they could not gin green seed cotton, which was the main type of cotton grown in the southeastern part of the United States. In other words, Eli Whitney perfected the cotton gin. He filed for a patent in 1793, hoping to get rich off his design. But instead of getting rich, he spent all his time suing people. Primarily concerned about pirating his invention, people building it and then not paying him royalties for it. And that got to the point that by 1798, he was nearing bankruptcy. Whitney was in a tough spot. Enter the musket. Whitney learned that the Secretary of the Treasury, a guy named Oliver Wolcott, was putting out calls for firearms contracts. The fledgling United States government needed to stockpile weapons to protect itself against a growing threat from France. The two countries were involved in an undeclared war over French attacks on U.S. shipping. Where government officials saw a threat, Whitney sensed a business opportunity. Whitney saw a firearms contract as a way of rescuing his cotton gin business, basically, because uh, he was going to get an advance on the contract. I think the advance was something like $10,000, a lot of money in 1798. The feds gave Whitney two years until 1800 to complete the contract. There was just one problem. Well, actually, make that several problems. He didn't own a factory. He had no workforce. He had no experience making firearms. 
And so, you know, it was a very gutsy move on his part to do something like that. Was it a stupid move on the part of the government to give it to him? Well, <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, it was because— they were desperate, I suppose, for firearms, but still to contract with somebody who had no experience is pretty remarkable. Given these circumstances, it's no surprise that Whitney blew his deadline. So the inventor headed to D.C. to ask for an extension. And this is when the musket really made an impact. He went to Washington with a box of muskets that he had made up in New Haven to demonstrate to John Adams, who was the outgoing president, and uh, the incoming president, Thomas Jefferson and other dignitaries that he could pull out the firing mechanism from his muskets and exchange them with one another. And from this, Jefferson concluded that all the parts were basically interchangeable. Interchangeable parts. Now, those words might not mean much to us today, but in 1800, they represented a revolution. Before that, each gun was made unto its own. Each one had its own parts, but they would not interchange with other guns, mainly because they were made in a craft style, which meant that every part was hand-filed and fitted and, you know, shaped to the point that it was going to all the parts that come together. Uh, Whitney was claiming that he could make a gun that didn't require filing or fitting, that it was all the parts would be, you know, able to fit one another, whether you're making 10 guns or 1,000 guns or whatever. Think of it this way. Before interchangeable parts, if a gun broke, there was nothing the soldier could do to fix it. But with Whitney's musket, a damaged part could be replaced on the spot, and the implications were huge. You know, Jefferson and Adams were really blew their minds uh, when he had this demonstration, and they walked away thinking, this guy's doing something new and different. We need to support him. By the time Jefferson became president in 1801, the war with France was over. And that was a good thing because Whitney still hadn't delivered his muskets. On the other hand, Whitney had something more powerful than a government contract. He had an idea that he could promote. Whitney spent the rest of his life spreading the gospel of interchangeable parts. And this idea would propel manufacturing and industry in ways that neither Whitney nor John Adams or Thomas Jefferson could even begin to imagine. If you've been following this presidential election, both campaigns have been responding to concerns about the country's declining manufacturing industries. Here at Backstory, we faced a challenge in responding to all that election chatter. How do you tell the history of dozens of industries? Well, every industry produces things, objects that have become parts of our lives. What about looking at how the objects themselves have changed American history? Today on the show, we're looking at a history of U.S. manufacturing through five objects. We'll find out how porcelain caused a trade war in a teacup. And we'll look at how the birth certificate radically changed who could work in American factories in the early 20th century. We'll also discuss why nylon stockings caused a run on American department stores in 1946. Ron, I can't wait to hear about those nylon stockings, but first, let's return to the musket. Oh, that's a musket. <laughs> Brian's on fire today. <laughs> now, do you remember Eli Whitney's demonstration of interchangeable parts in front of Jefferson and Adams? Yep. Well, historian Merritt Rose Smith says that Whitney pretty much faked it. 
the reality is, is that Whitney did not invent interchangeable parts. That's a, a process that worked itself out in the United States primarily over a 40-year period. Uh, he never achieved it in his lifetime, but that said, his legend cannot be completely destroyed because he was a promoter of the idea. He wanted to see this new technology developed. He just didn't mm-hmm. do it himself. There were others that achieved that he idea. He kind of planted the seed, right? He by planted claiming the seed. That he could do it. Absolutely. He did. pushed the idea, planted the seed. And for that, he deserves a lot of credit. You know, today when we're used to everything being interchangeable, uh, it seems like we should have discovered this a long time ago. Why was it such a hard thing for people to imagine, much less accomplish? The main reason is if we project ourselves back to, say, 1800. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of the lack of machines and the lack of measuring devices that just were not in the United States at that time. A whole new set of ways of making things had to be developed. I see, right. And these are primarily not just self-acting machines, like a milling machine, for example, but also more precise gauges that were used to test the parts as they were coming off the line. And that was a whole different mindset than what had existed under the craft system in the United States. I see. Or in Europe, for that matter. Right. But why guns? I mean, of all the other things that we could have made with interchangeable parts, does it say anything about the United States that weapons were our main contribution to 19th century manufacturing? Why guns? It's a great question. I think it has to do with the military implications that, first of all, governments often sponsored the development of this new technology, both in the United States and in Europe. And it's an expensive venture. No private individual in the early 1800s could have afforded to invest the amount of money that was needed in order to develop this over the course. Think, if you're a company in, say, New Haven or wherever, uh, having to invest in the development of a new technology over a 30 or 40-year period, You'd be bankrupt. Right. And nobody else that has, has that much of an incentive for their parts to be interchangeable. It's only if you have lots of men with lots of guns, th- does that become a big deal, right? Absolutely. You know, it wasn't the U.S. Army that actually did the work. There were private individuals and public institutions like the two national armories at Springfield and Harpers Ferry. But it was the constant prodding and congressional funding of these ventures that made them, you know, in effect, made it possible for these uh, procedures and these new techniques to be worked out. I think people might be surprised. We would think about this as being a clear example of just private enterprise, but the federal government's been a critical ingredient from the very beginning then. I think one of the most interesting things about American history is what I tell my students about. I call it government in, government out. And what I mean by that is that when an idea often comes about in the private sector, a particular inventor has a great idea but doesn't have the money to develop it, uh, they turn to the government support. And basically, uh, that government support helps them get through that risky time when the new invention, there's no guarantee it'll work out or not. But once it becomes economically viable, Government gets out, and it becomes privatized, basically. So it really was kind of a, a national accomplishment. Uh, and it must have been a surprise to the world that the Americans could do this. So how did this, this invention identified with the United States become known around the world? Well, basically, it happened at the London Crystal Palace Exhibition in 1851, which was organized by Queen Victoria's husband. The thing that's interesting about it is that the United States tended to send very utilitarian stuff 
you know, countries like Russia were exhibiting very fine wear, uh, Fabergé, for example, right. and French tapestries, very fine stuff. And here are the Americans exhibiting guns and rifles and apple peelers and plug tobacco <laughs> and stuff like that. And the British were sort of making fun of these American notions, as they call them. But you have people like this firm from Windsor, Vermont, named Robbins and Lawrence. Uh, they exhibit six interchangeable rifles. It was so novel to European eyes that it, w- it got the name the American System of Manufacturers to uh, – encapsulate basically the whole process of interchangeable manufacturing, especially in firearms. So did the invention of interchangeable parts in the American arms industry sort of spread through other industries in the United States? Surely did. Uh, And it moved fairly quickly. Once the arms industry had developed the capacity to make guns with interchangeable parts, you see them, that information, those techniques moving to other technically rated industries. And as a result of that, gun makers, interestingly, became the first manufacturers of the first commercial product made with gun making technology. Take a guess what it is. Um, it's not a cotton gin. Not a cotton gin. <laughs> a washing machine? Well, you're in the right area. Okay. It's a sewing machine. Well, didn't see that coming. Sewing machines to locomotive equipment, huh. to pocket watches. And you can go right on down the line from, you know, watches and bicycles to automobiles, refrigerators, you name it. Are all those technologies built on interchangeable parts? Yeah, absolutely. So so that's the commonality. That's the commonality is the use of machine tools and gauges and uh, basically precision measurement devices to manufacture parts interchangeably into products that could be used in the consumer market. And... I think the thing that's interesting about this story of interchangeable parts is how it strings itself over a long period of time and touches so many different areas of manufacturing. We've only talked about a few, but, you know, it has profited from what originated from Eli Whitney and his contemporaries in the early 19th century. Merritt Rose Smith is a historian at MIT and co-author of Inventing America, A History of the United States. Well before interchangeable parts were a twinkle in Eli Whitney's eye, another item inspired visions of a brighter future. Here's the situation. In British North America, colonists enjoyed luxury goods courtesy of the sprawling British Empire. Tea and spices from India, sugar from the Caribbean, and finished goods like glass, paper, and fine furniture made in London. There was just one catch. Colonists could only buy these goods from British merchants, often at a substantial markup. This forced dependence on England was a source of mounting tension. Frustrated colonists took to smuggling overpriced goods like tea. They also began to manufacture their own versions of imported luxuries. And this simple act helped pave the way for American independence. In some ways, it set the table. Which brings us to our next manufactured object, porcelain. Most of us probably have a porcelain cup or two in our kitchen. For American colonists, porcelain was as coveted and valuable as sterling silver. It's about refinement, and the Americans were eager to to live a refined lifestyle. 
This is Alexandra Kirtley, a curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. She says to understand why early Americans were so enamored of imported porcelain, you'd have to compare it to the earthenware pottery manufactured in the colonies. Earthenware was the opposite of refinement. It was rough, thick, heavy, and easily broken. Porcelain is different from earthenware. It's harder. It's also translucent. So when you put it up to light, light shines through it. So how, how wonderful that you have this material that is at once stronger, yet light transmits through it. Right. So all the senses were engaged. This is the Enlightenment sensorium, as historians call it. The Enlightenment in a teacup, you might say. <laughs> that's, yes, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> And in America, there was not only the desire to have this porcelain and to use this porcelain, but to make it. So if the Americans, if the colonists could produce their own porcelain, why, the world was their oyster, because that was the ultimate in luxury wear production. Curtly says that by the mid-18th century, colonists could produce their own porcelain. They had discovered rich deposits of kaolin, that's the clay used to make porcelain in the American South. And they had a seemingly limitless supply of wood to keep fires burning in porcelain kilns. They even had craftsmen who could build the kilns and keep them going. By 1770, there were two known American manufactories of fine porcelain in Philadelphia and Charleston, South Carolina. The goal was, in the words of one potter, to make every kind of earthenware that is usually imported from England. These factories produced everything from finely decorated plates and pitchers to pickle stands to the delight of the colonists who could afford them. You could say this local porcelain inspired the colony's first bi-local movement. There was a lot of support at the top. Ben Franklin himself, when he was in London, his wife sent him some porcelain made at the, the porcelain works here in Philadelphia. And he replied back to her and said, go on and encouraging the manufacturers at the China works. But not everyone was happy that the colonists had cracked the porcelain ceiling. The Brits would have been quite nervous that the Americans were able to do this, that the Americans were actually able to produce luxury manufacturers. You know, the American colonies were established by the British with the goal of providing raw materials to the mother country. The whole point of the colonies was not to manufacture, but to provide raw materials for manufacturing on the other side of the ocean. That's correct. That's correct. Americans continued to be uh, not only a source of the raw materials, but also a market for those manufactured goods. However, the American colonists as they were able to become more proficient in local manufacturers, became more of a threat to that mercantile system that the British created and were thriving on. If colonial Americans were producing, were manufacturing their own products, then the whole system would break down. All of which helps explain what happened next. Back in jolly old England, the manufacturers there heard about this, mm. and they cut their prices. Ow. Yes. Yeah, so this is a, a kind of a commercial warfare that anticipates the revolution itself, you might say. Like dumping porcelain in America to eliminate potential competition? That's correct. Those British price cuts crushed the tiny American porcelain industry. 
but currently says experience-making porcelain fired Americans' imaginations about their future. It was sort of wind in the sails that we were able to boast of making porcelain in America. It really was a great badge of honor for us. And part of that was sort of the alchemy that was reflected in the production of porcelain. Using the earth, using um, materials that were naturally occurring, combining them, adding heat to them, and coming up with a completely new substance. You might say, Alexandra, that if you could transform the earth as you do with porcelain, you could transform the country and make the land into a new country. That's actually a wonderful analogy. I mean, you you could. There was something that was um, was inspirational about being able to create something magical, um, exotic, and perhaps also that regular people could throw off the, the powers of the mother country. This is why visions of the future are so important to Americans at this time. That's correct. Of course, they're proving something to the Brits. But more important than that, they're proving something to themselves because uh, provincial Americans uh, would have doubts about their capacities, uh, about their civility, about their refinement. And this was a definitive answer because they look at the growing wealth of the colonies and say, yeah, one day we could be England. That's correct. It provided, it was a source of pride that they were going to be able to do this. The great experiment was going to be able to take hold if they could produce that, if they could manufacture that, then we really didn't need to be connected to Britain. They saw themselves playing on a, um, a world uh, field. They saw themselves being able to participate like England, France, Germany, Italy. Alexandra Kirtley is a curator of American decorative arts at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And if you want to see some of that fine American porcelain for yourself, head to our website, backstoryradio.org. So far today, we've looked at how a couple of manufactured objects, muskets and porcelain, changed the course of American life. Now, let's reverse the process. Let's see how another object actually just a slip of paper, actually changed American manufacturing by changing who could work. By the late 19th century, manufacturing in the United States was exploding. Machines were stitching together shirts, cutting leather, rolling cigars, and forging steel. To keep up with all that production, factories needed workers, and lots of them. Company managers met that demand with children. Many even preferred children. Kids were docile, less likely to strike, and best of all, cheap. About 20% of children in 1900 are working outside the home for wages. This is historian Susan Pearson. One thing that industrialization does is it de-skills labor. And uh, the great advantage of unskilled labor for employers is that they can pay children so much less than they have to pay an adult male to perform the equivalent task. It was one thing for kids to help out on the family farm, but industrial jobs were something else altogether. Working in factories and mines was dangerous and hard, with the workday often stretching beyond 12 hours. You know those photos you've seen of forlorn-looking children standing next to machines three times their size? Those pictures were part of reformers' efforts to outlaw child labor in factories. But progress was slow, 
in part because the government couldn't prove how old anybody was. Even in states that are able to pass laws that regulate children's labor, so say New York State passes a law in the 1880s that says you've got to be 14 years old to work in a factory. Okay, well, how do you prove that? How do you know what children are 14 and which are 13 and which are 12? The answer, the birth certificate. Today, every American citizen has one. But in the 19th century, parents recorded the birth of their children in the family Bible, if at all. Pearson says in the 19th century, age was a fuzzy concept. A lot of people didn't keep careful track of when their children were born or when they themselves were born. If you think about it, in the 19th century, there weren't a lot of reasons you needed to know your exact birth date. So when census takers would come around and ask people how old they were, they would give very round numbers. They would say, I'm about 25 or I'm close to 30. So if so many children were working, why were some other people so concerned about those children working, especially in factories? They would have told you that child labor is wrong because it stunts the physical and mental growth of children who work in industrial settings. However, historians have different explanations for why child labor becomes a problem. And that really has to do with changing ideas about childhood itself and what it is that childhood is for, right? That children should be kept away from the adult world in their own kinds of activities that are developmentally appropriate. So they should be in school, not working. Mm -hmm. They should be playing, not working. They should be shielded from premature contact with adult activities like going into saloons or coming in contact with vice or any of the kinds of mixing that children and adults routinely used to do. Once the states actually started uh, requiring uh, registration of births and then requiring birth certificates in order to work, how did the families react? A lot of families were not happy. Clearly, the child labor reformers, they are at war with working class conceptions of childhood, of the fuzziness of chronological age, and of working class household economy. Mm -hmm. And those parents, we might look at them and think they were greedy or selfish or didn't understand what children really need. Chances are they were operating from a worldview in which all family members contribute to the financial well-being of the household. As soon as they're big enough to work, everybody's put to work. That's how it had always been. What changed was that the kind of work children could do became industrial. We haven't talked about how the kids felt about this. Did they like working? Most of them did. There's a lot of testimony, even among the reformers who think that they're protecting these children. They find all the time when they go into factories that the children want to be there and they are even proud of the work that they do and the money that they bring into their families. Uh, a national child labor committee employee, a guy named Owen Lovejoy, went and visited kids in the coal mines in Pennsylvania. And he wrote the typical breaker boy, who's a boy who works in the coal mine, 
is proud of his breaker and boasts of its daily output. And he goes on to say they're proud about how fast they can work, how accurately they can work, but also, and I quote, they're proud of the independence which personal economic value gives him in the home. Hmm. So what impact does this have when it's fully in place, let's say by 1940? How does this change manufacturing? It makes it much harder to work before the age of 16, which is the standard that the Fair Labor Standards Act creates. It also uh, works in conjunction with compulsory schooling laws to change the nature of the workforce as a whole. So in 1900, only 10% of youth age 14 to 17 are attending high school. By 1940, when the Fair Labor Standards Act is in place, that has jumped to 73%. So that's a sevenfold increase in the number of young people that are staying in the workforce past the age of 14. When you started doing your research, did you expect a piece of paper to have such a dramatic impact on the labor force, the workforce in manufacturing? I did not. I didn't know how central it was to child labor reform. I thought that it would be on the periphery, one of many things that the birth certificate did. But the more I did the research, the more I discovered that it was really this campaign against child labor that was the first time that birth certificates were used as identification documents in this way. Is the birth certificate just a symbol of government's increased role in kind of mediating between workers and employers? In some sense, yeah, it is. It's certainly not the only example from this period, from the late 19th and early 20th century, where you see everything from the Pure Food and Drug Act, which is passed in 1906, to efforts in the states to regulate the number of hours per day and per week that employees can work, to regulating the kinds of work that women can do. There's a large national movement to try to control the terms of industrial production in the United States. Right. And you can add workers' compensation and workers' safety laws to that. Absolutely. Susan Pearson is a historian at Northwestern University and the author of The Rights of the Defenseless, Protecting Children and Animals in the Gilded Age. She's currently working on a book about the history of, you guessed it, the birth certificate. Backstory listeners, listen up. This is a listener challenge, and it's a challenge for our upcoming show on the history of horror. And to help us challenge you, we have our producer, Nina Ernest. Hi. Hey, Nina. Nina. Hey, guys. So before I tell you the challenge, I'm going to tell you a story. So Mm. I am from rural Iowa, small town, and there's a local legend we have about a girl named Lucinda. The story goes that Lucinda, in the late 19th century, 
was supposed to get married. She was supposed to run off with the man. But when she went to go meet him, he didn't show up. And he either didn't show up because he abandoned her, or because his wagon wheel got stuck. The details are a little murky. Oh, not that. Stick in the mud. I know. (laughs) Either way, she threw herself off the bluffs down on Stony Hollow Road. So the local myth is that if you go to Stony Hollow Road and you call her name three times, she will appear. And if she appears and drops a rose, then you will die the next day. So a lot of people in my high school, this was a big thing that people would go check it out. I just called a friend and she said that she was going to do it, but she chickened out. So are there big blank places in your high school annual where people died from uh, (laughs) getting on the wrong side of the story? Maybe there were just no roses dropped. They saw her, but there were no roses. My goodness. Well, Nina, I I mesmerized, but where do our listeners come in? Okay. Yeah, what's... What's the challenge? So this is a phenomenon that folklorists and anthropologists are now calling legend tripping. And the idea is that it's oral storytelling and local mythology that sets up these repeatable experiences that are seen as a rite of passage for young people, which is why I was all these people in my high school who were like, we're going to go see Lucinda tonight. We want to know your local legend tripping stories. We want to know what those things are that were your rites of passage that you said, well, we're going to go call this person's name three times and whatever supernatural experience was supposed to happen to you. We want to hear them. We want to know your name. We want to know where the legend is and what the legend says. So you should leave a comment on our website, backstoryradio.org, or record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to us at backstory at virginia.edu. Or... Just call Lucinda, and she'll deliver the message. Ha, 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 ha. But make it quick. We only got a minute for you. That's right, Peter. We want these to be a minute or less. Thanks a lot, Nina. I look forward to these scary stories. Our next object comes to us compliments of the DuPont Chemical Corporation. DuPont made its fortune in the 19th century, manufacturing gunpowder and other explosives. But in the 1920s, with its bottom line secure, the company decided to branch out. Executives decided to invest in scientific research that they hoped would yield prestige, if not necessarily profit. The new division was jokingly nicknamed Purity Hall. The company recruited some of the country's most promising young chemists. One of them was a Harvard man named Wallace Carruthers. They set him up with a very expensive laboratory with no request that he makes anything that will make them a profit. This is Susanna Handley, a textile researcher based in Paris. She says Carruthers' experiments made DuPont even richer and something of a household name. Those experiments also sparked a revolution that fundamentally altered American manufacturing. Which leads us to our next object, nylon stockings. Here's a piece of a cloth we make from coal and other things. It's called nylon. But how can a soft thing like this come from a hard thing like a piece of coal? It's basically... a. A polymer? It's very difficult to explain. This is adipic acid, and this is hexamethylene diamine. Tiny, tiny, tiny molecules joined together in limitless lengths. Hexa. Hexa. Say, Mr. Norton, 
How can you remember a name like that? It became like a petrochemical necklace, and they could make really, really long and really, really strong and really durable to some extent and elastic. And here's a full bobbin of bright, silky nylon yarn. This sort of whole masculine molecular world became collision between the most feminine of items, stockings. Better things for better living through chemistry. DuPont saw market for its unexpected discovery. At the time, women's stockings were made from fragile imported raw silk, far too expensive for the average woman. But DuPont was willing to bet millions of women would spring for pricey stockings if they were strong enough to last. And so the company began courting women with a national advertising campaign two years before nylons were ready for the market. And DuPont chemists are working to develop fibers that will be even finer, softer, tougher, and less expensive than those we have now. Stronger than steel wire of the same cross-section. As strong as steel. steel. As strong as steel. That's what they said. And Uh um, they had great big promotional shows. They had the Nylon Bride. It was in all sorts of magazines as well, where everything the bride was wearing and everything in her boudoir, it was constructed from nylon material. (laughs) (laughs) And they had uh, very expensive exhibits created at world fairs. They uh, hired the most attractive models available at the time, put them in uh, nylon stockings, paraded them around the World Fair. They were very proud of this potential to sell their fiber. And even though nylons cost a lot more than silk stockings initially, they had a major advantage over silk. You know, it was advanced, it was futuristic. All synthetics in the 20th century presented a new thrill, new materials, new shapes, new forms, all these new products that were made from plastics and ball gowns made from synthetic fibres were the herald of a new future. You know, it was very contemporary, very modern. But then, practically overnight, nylon stockings vanished from department stores. America goes to war. Men of the Army, Navy, and when the U.S. entered World War II, DuPont began producing nylon for the troops in parachutes, ropes, and hammocks. And suddenly, one of the most coveted consumer products in America became virtually unattainable. Women who couldn't get their hands on actual stockings found creative ways to attain the coveted nylon look. By staining their legs and drawing a line down the back with a crayon, <laughs> which uh, indicated the seam of the stocking. But it wasn't until the war ended in 1945 that Americans understood the full impact of the synthetics revolution. Just months after Japan's surrender, small shipments of nylon stockings went on sale again in a limited number of stores. Women were eager to get their hands on evidence of America's return to normalcy, really eager. In New York, there were 30,000 women. They were called the Nylon Mob, and perhaps husbands included, I'm not sure. And uh, Pittsburgh, 40,000. And uh, the newspapers made great heyday from all these women. Yeah, I'm looking at one of these headlines right now from Pittsburgh. Nylon Mob, 40,000 strong, shrieks and sways for miles. 
Pittsburgh Press, June 13, 1946. A good old-fashioned, hair-pulling, face-scratching fight broke out on the line shortly before midnight. Police had to swarm in and restore order. A few who tried to slip into the lines were shouted out with screams that could be heard for blocks. Some of the language used would have shocked a Boston fish peddler. As the last of the crowd melted away, a patrolman summed it up. I hope, he said, I hope I never see another woman. I don't think the world had witnessed anything quite like that. Perhaps um, in the 1960s with Beatlemania, where it was complete obsession and hysteria that greeted a strange material. That's what was unusual. It wasn't linked to a person, a personality or anything. It was linked to having something flattering and sheer and fitting on your legs, which gave you a kind of social status of desirability. Handley says this hunger for nylon stockings reflected the desire among Americans to embrace a new era of prosperity, a desire that industry was more than happy to satisfy. You need a convergence of situations to make a new invention really work. The chemical industries, the textile manufacturing industries, the fashion industries, and not least of all, perhaps most of all, the marketing industries. It has to be the right moment. I mean, the rest of Europe was pretty devastated, but there was America, the symbol of the Coca-Cola. Everybody could have this symbol of plenty. And nylon just hit the right moment. Susanna Handley is a textile researcher and the author of Nylon, the Story of a Fashion Revolution. Special thanks to historian Jeff Meikle, author of American Plastic, A Cultural History. Today we're exploring the history of manufacturing in five objects. So far, we've heard about porcelain, the musket, the birth certificate, and nylon stockings. Our final object today is the cathode ray tube, also known as the picture tube. This innovation projected the image on a television screen. These tubes look like clear, oversized Christmas lights, about the length of a hand. Zenith, based in Chicago, became one of the country's biggest manufacturers of televisions. There, in a Chicago suburb called Melrose Park, Workers streamed into the Zenith plant every day, and they produced millions of those tubes there. Their livelihoods were built on them. But the lives of those workers were upended when Zenith's plant shut its doors. In 2008, Ben Calhoun was a radio producer for WBEZ in Chicago. Though the Zenith plant had already been closed for nearly a decade, Calhoun tracked down its former employees, and he recorded their memories of factory life. We offer his documentary as a reminder of the lives behind not only Zenith's picture tubes, but all manufactured objects throughout American history. My name's Wally Kirby. I started in 1984, and when Zenith closed its doors in 2001, I was finally laid off after about a 17-year stint. My name is Nancy Katowski. I was there about three and a half years. My name is John Cummins. I worked there from 79 till about 98. The first time I went, I was 14 years old. 
My father worked there also. I was so scared. It was cavernous. So big and so confusing, yeah, I would get lost. Easily a city block long. An amazingly stuffed building. The place was huge. That's when I finally got the idea of how immense the plant was, and I was actually awestricken. When you went to work, it was like a, a city all on its own. They ran 24 hours a day, so it was never ending. Packing tubes, packing tubes, packing tubes. The rhythm of the building seemed to be constant, and the people, you know, sometimes people would get a little bit behind. You'd see them speed up. Go, 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 go. And have to work faster until they got caught up. Constant motion. I was talking with another gentleman, and he turned to me and he said, you know, look at the trucks that pull in and bring the glass in and the trucks that pull out with picture tubes. And just think how many picture tubes they have to sell to keep all these people employed. Maximum three to 3.5 million picture tubes a year. And that was running uh, three shifts. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. Seven days a week for all but maybe four weeks out of the year. And that would be Christmas and New Year's and the 4th of July. Loud. Very, very, very noisy. Very loud. There was so much excitement. For the most part, the noise level was probably real close to any EPA limit. You had to become accustomed to the noises. Tubes busting, bells ringing. It's like when you're at home, certain noises just become secondary. Just used to it. Every piece of equipment in there had its own personality. They all looked the same. They all looked like as if though they should be the same, but they weren't. Different, like, you know, when they put the glass on top of the... Hundreds of machines. It was momentum, though. It was constant sounds. And you would know where you were, even if you had your eyes closed, because you would hear those particular noises. It was more or less the heartbeat of a building. Like, if there was, like, doors opening, closing, like, you know, robotic, like... You know when something was blowing up. Uh, boom, you, it would be so loud. You would, it, boom, and half the building would shut down. Yeah. That would be the sound. But when they shut down, it was like walking through a ghost town. You could almost hear a pin drop, and it was hard to believe you could go from one extreme to the other. The conveyor system there was pretty much the lifeline of the process. 13 to 15 miles of conveyors. Throughout the whole building. I guess you could basically get on one conveyor and take a ride all the way to the other end of the plant. The conveyors went up and down different levels. They would turn the corners. The carts turned and up and down and around in a U-shape and come back. and Safety baskets had to be put underneath all of all of the conveyors because... Uh, I guess picture those baskets. Glass being like glasses, glass breaks. Oh, constantly. Tubes were breaking all different areas of the building. By the time they were ready to be put into a TV set, they were in the 80 to 85-pound range. They call it an implosion. Since it's a vacuum inside, it explodes in. Heat was a vital process to producing a picture tube. Many times the glass level was well over 400 degrees. 
And if the ceiling leaked... There was leaks in the roof. And just... If a rain dropped. One drop of water hit that tube. These tubes would shatter just like glass would normally shatter if it's hot and cold. We've all done that with Pyrex type wear. Sometimes you'd get a cascading effect. One would explode and it would set the one off next to it and the one down from it. So you'd hear one explosion knowing that moments later you'd hear two or three more. And because of that, it would rain glass. Very nice big pieces of glass that can cut you pretty good. The hazards that I personally faced... Right, like the asbestos? They told everybody that there was no asbestos in the building. You know, there were some chemicals that we were using to clean certain things, and then... After using them for a year and a half, you were told, well, we can't use that anymore because it's a suspected carcinogen. Well, what about the year and a half that I used it? It'll kill bacteria in life. Hydrochloric acid. You'd see people get cut. You know what I mean? You knew that there was acid in there. And I remember getting some on my finger one time and then watching as the skin literally turned white. Containers, and they'd say danger. Your skin would be bleached for one or two days. There's a couple of horror stories I have. I could have killed that guy. And there was four days that I ended up spending at home with eye patches on. I seen a guy take off his index finger, cream and some salve. He wasn't the only guy that lost a finger. Bob's head was caught in the machine, screaming. A steel plate in his head, reconstructing the, that side of his head. Six, seven times a week, the ambulance would be there from Melrose Park to do something for somebody. You know, you hear the reports that other countries are being industrialized and, and they're their standards of protection aren't as high as ours are or were, and what are those people dealing with today? By the time I left, they were trying to fully automate the plant. They brought in 10 new robots, big yellow robots. That was their way of making the company profitable. Didn't work out that way, though. The person was way more accurate. And several times we'd watch them, and we'd just bust tube after tube after tube after tube. It would be, oh, what a waste. I was out of there before they actually said, well, this place is going to close down as a production plant. So that was a pretty gruesome day. Um, the people, some were crying, didn't want to leave. I certainly didn't want to leave there. It was just strange to see some place that you had spent 20 years just kind of get up and move. It was easier just to let everybody go. We're going to take our business elsewhere. It was pretty overwhelming. All the families. Grandfathers, sons. Brothers, the sisters. Grandsons. Not only my dad, I had an uncle. I had a couple of cousins. It was a big time hurt for these people. It was a big time hurt for me. That our manufacturing base, which is what helped bring everybody's standard of living up, was slowly declining. A little bit of resentment, a little animosity. Uh, towards, I, I, I don't know who to blame here. I don't think it's society per se or just the growth of technology. I don't know. I, I have some mixed emotions on that. Where do we help the next generation come up? We have grown past being an industrial nation. Is it going to be strictly just a service industry? It's hard for me to see that the three-piece suit is doing the same thing. You know, it's not doing the same thing. It isn't the same thing. So 
Our opinions and our values can't be the same thing. They have got to have changed. We go to the store, we buy it off the shelf, we put it on our, in our living room and we watch it. But there was so much more involved. There were so many lives that went through to make that tube. I look back at some of those days and, you know, think, where would I be today if I were still working there? Probably the best teamwork type situation that I've ever had to be in. And you knew who you could depend on and you didn't question them. I guess what I'd want to say is that uh, a lot of people put a lot of their lives into that building. I mean, the picture that's being drawn in my mind right now is like, there's ghosts there. Even though we go and we work someplace and we come home and we live our lives, maybe we leave just a little bit of ourselves everywhere we go, you know, and each job that you go to, it changes you in some way or, or molds you in some way. I think uh, that's because we do leave a little bit of ourselves in those places. Those were the voices of Zenith factory workers Wally Kirby, Nancy Katowski, and John Cummings. That piece was produced by Ben Calhoun in 2008 for WBEZ in Chicago. He's now the station's vice president of content and programming. You know, hearing that story of Zenith and connecting it back to the story of Eli Whitney and interchangeable parts kind of makes you wonder how much the story of manufacturing is the story of interchangeability of places and of processes and even of people. Is that too dark a view of things? I don't think so, Ed. There's another way to frame it, though. Interchangeability can be seen as mobility. That is, everybody has an equal chance to get that factory job that may be opening up someplace. And I think the big fact of American industrial history until fairly recently was that there were plenty of jobs. And compared to Europe and Britain particularly, uh, factory laborers made a good living. So, Ed, I think it's important to remember the reason that people are interchangeable today is for 100 years, we've been distributing all this stuff all over the world. The rise of international trade is an important part of this interchangeability story. I want to make just a simple point about interchangeability in the 20th century. That's the interchangeability of roles. The people who make stuff are also seen as the people who buy that stuff. Workers are considered to be consumers as well. Their roles are very interchangeable. So, Peter, you're our specialist in taking the really big picture of things. (laughs) How far have we moved from the days of porcelain and 18th century America? Well, I think we're still there in some ways, Ed. On the one hand, interchangeability is associated with mobility, dynamism. It's what has made America great. On the other hand, we're not making much anymore. And that sense that you make a country great, it really refers back to the idea of of being able to make the very best things, the best porcelain. Uh, Because we have made a great country. What will we be making in the future And that sense that the whole world can do what Americans once did best, well, that I think is very upsetting for many people. What is the future of the producer in the modern post-industrial world? 
That's going to do it for today, but head to our website and let us know what you thought of the show. While you're there, share your stories of local legends for our Halloween special about the history of horror. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Diana Williams is our digital editor. And Melissa Gismondi is our researcher. We have help from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee, Liz McCauley, and Peyton Wall. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.